The history of statistics is filled with interesting facts about the development of the field and stories of the people who helped shape it. A new column at Chance Magazine will explore the history of stats, and that's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Chaitra Nagaraja, a senior lecturer at the University of Exeter. Her research interests are primarily in measurement, particularly macroeconomic and socioeconomic indicators, time series, and the history of statistics. In addition to her university research and teaching, she's the chair of the American Statistical Association's Scientific and Public Affairs Advisory Committee, a member of the Royal Statistical Society's History of Statistics section, and the book review editor for the International Statistics Review. She also recently accepted a co-editorship position for the new History of Statistics column in Chance Magazine, History Chronicles. Chaitra, thank you for joining us here on Stats and Stories again. Thank you very much for having me. How did History Chronicles get started? Well, actually, one of the new co-editors of Chance Magazine, Wendy uh, Martinez, actually, she was part of the ASA History of Statistics interest group. And she's the one that sort of contacted Penny Reynolds, who's my co-editor, who is also involved in that group. And she contacted me. And the reason why we both know each other was we sort of started talking to kind of bridge the Royal Statistical Society, History of Stats, and the ASA, American Statistical Association um, groups together to see what we could do jointly. So what got you interested in, in history in the first place in terms of the discipline? I have always loved history. And as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, Steven Stigler was my professor. And honestly, I've always wanted to be like him. So that has been my sort of goal in life since then. Do you and have you and Penny talked about what you hope this column sort of what work it does for the education of history around stats? Have you sort of sat down like here's here's where where we need to be if we think this has been successful? I think we're still experimenting since the column has just started um, and we're trying to be open in the sunset, trying to find history in, in many different kinds of places to try to make it uh, a little bit global. So we have both the columns and uh, Penny has put together different dates that are important in statistics history and possibly include, um, you know, some voices from prominent statisticians to say, you know, here are, is there a way to kind of put into perspective statistical ideas and how they've traveled through time. I think a lot of times, at least academics, when they read papers, you have the literature review part of it. Um, but that really doesn't do much justice in, in terms of thinking about statistics as a field, which has its own sort of philosophies and motivations that don't necessarily appear in a dry academic article. Okay, so, so why is it important to have an understanding of the history of statistics? I think a lot of times uh, when I read articles talking about algorithmic bias and various types of ways that algorithms can be sexist or racist or, or you know, harm certain groups of people, much of that boils down to what was your data? How was it collected? And a lot of those questions depend on historical ways that people were thinking about something and either it sort of stuck 
as in like a formal government policy, and then it becomes difficult to dislodge. Um, you can look at poverty measurement as an example of that in the United States, or even thinking just a concept of it. Uh, for example, back in you know the 1800s, there was a lot of work on you know thinking about how to take something that is a physical science and port those ideas onto people, and especially through astronomy. So how can we but that is a very specific way of thinking about people that are people are, you know, fuzzy characters, um, <laughs> not in the same way. You can't think of us as physical constants and things that stay the same through time. So trying to port ideas from one type of science to another really affected how, how it motivated their own research and how statistical ideas came about. And I think following those through can help think about how to approach statistics now in that it's not just a collection of tools, but rather a way of thinking. So you, you mentioned that that uh, one of the things that, that you all put together is, is some of the highlights and milestones. And I saw that in one of the first articles that one of the first columns that you had contributed to Chance, that you had mentioned some of these highlights and milestones. Would you, you want to share some of your favorites? Oh, honestly, I can't remember any <laughs> dates and I didn't put them together. So... Um, I would have to ask Penny for that because she's the one who, who sort of collated all of those. So I will say 1790 because that was the first U.S. census. I think that would be a date that I personally know and I think is a good one. Yeah, I, I also you know noted as I'm, I'm looking. See, I have the advantage. I'm reading them now as I'm talking to you. So I, that gives me a yeah. <laughs> I, just, I memorized all of them, Chaitra. How come you didn't? Uh, you know. So. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's not about dates. It's not about <laughs> right, dates. No, right. no, but but things like the idea of introducing descriptions of of distributions, like kurtosis and some of those, and in, in in 1905, or the uh, the run up to D-Day, thinking about the code breakers, or in in 1876, pointing to the the Guinness story of students' T statistic. I it's it's always fun to think about how how kind of long-standing and old some of these ideas are, but also that there was a context in which this work was done and the importance of it. And I think that's one of the appeals to me of, of thinking about the history of statistics and, and how it plays out. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, in some ways, statistics is very old and very new. If you look at some of yeah. the fun fundamental papers there in the past hundred years, on the flip side, thinking statistical thinking itself is very old. You know, there have been censuses that have been um, administered for long periods of time. A census is even mentioned in the Bible, for instance, and the reason why um, Mary and Joseph were traveling in the first place to be counted. So those are all, you know, they didn't have the label of statistics, but they definitely had the essence of, of counting and thinking about chance um, even in our everyday language. And so some of statistics required more formal mathematics to actually be able to write that down and eventually computing to be able to actually calculate some of those things that were just theoretical ideas. Um, so I think it's interesting how it's both very old and very, very new. I'm looking at the column you and Penny wrote, Fresh Perspective, where you're sort of laying out sort of what, what History Chronicles might be. And, and in it, you talk about sort of erasures from kind of our the story of stats in certain ways. And I wonder, or, or people who've just been sort of erased for 
for the work they did. And I wonder how you're thinking the column could sort of help address some of these erasures in this, right? So the idea that stats has been around for a long time in different forms. How do you think columns like yours can sort of help address some of the erasures in the history of stats? I think there are a couple ways of, of sort of thinking about it. One, I mean, my area is mostly government statistics. So unearthing various really old government documents and seeing what people were thinking at that time. And that sometimes I feel like the narratives have been flattened to, you know, oh, these people were just very racist or very sexist. And actually, they were having some more nuanced conversations and bringing that to the forefront, I think, would help people understand that, you know, this has always been a dialogue between people with different ideas and different, yes, different motivations, but isn't necessarily sort of a, a one framework um, to fit all, all needs. They're also, just like with the discovery of the double helix and Rosalind Franklin, um, there have been people that have worked on things that didn't necessarily get the, get the credit for it for whatever, for, for whatever reason. So hopefully this column will help with that as well. Um, one of our future columns actually will talk about the suffragette movement and um, the interplay between how people considered that from a statistical standpoint. So hopefully that will be something to look forward to. My colleague who's at the Royal Statistical Society History Section um, committee member along with me, um, Altea Lorenzo Arribas, she is writing that. So, hope, so I, I think there's two ways of looking at it in that one. You know, I, I, when I was in grad school, I was I was very taken with uh, Stephen Jay Gould's writing. You know, I really enjoyed a lot of. Th there was a lot of history, and, and ultimately, even though he was a a, a a paleobiologist, geologist type of person, one of the message in some of his work was the the cultural and and historic context and at the time in which science is done, and how that helps shape what is done. Uh, do Do you see kind of those? that type of idea being infused in some of the, the future columns of this effort? Yeah, I mean, things are products of their time, and sometimes it's hard to see that, at least, you know, in my own sort of development as, you know, reading and writing about history of science. You know, you look at your textbook, there are these theorems that kind of appear out of nowhere, um, but they are a product of slow tinkering through time about what an idea, you know, like maximum likelihood or what does it mean to have a representative sample. And some of those ideas are, are you know, coming back to give you an example. Uh, design of experiments is not a very glamorous topic. It used to be taught in terms of like agricultural experiments. And, and you can see in a lot of universities that courses on that have sort of been downplayed or removed for, you know, sexier topics like machine learning or neural nets or whatnot. But you saw, see a resurgence in that in tech companies with their A-B testing and the fact that every time you Google something, you're probably sort of part of some complicated experiment. So I think there are a lot of ideas that are coming back into play in a different way just because of the, the computing power that we have now that I think would be interesting to look at um, to see how they've changed and, 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 you know, what ideas can we take from the past and sort of bring to a, a different context. I remember being struck by when I was in, in grad school, and, and this was in design, when, when talking about randomization to, to test conditions, and that, that being, I think the instructor at the time said something like, well, this was a novel idea when it first came up. 
that, that somehow the idea of randomizing subjects to, to conditions before an intervention was, was, was novel. And it's just like, wow, how, how could that be novel? I mean, it's, it's, it's such an accepted, you know, given way that we do business. The fact that at one time it was thought of as, as this strange, new, emerging idea is I find yeah, it fascinating. Even taking an average, something that, you know, people do in the third grade was at one time a very novel concept that you can get more information by collapsing your your 10 data points into one. It doesn't doesn't feel right from an intuitive perspective because you have 10 pieces of information and now we're just sort of combining it into one number. How could that be telling us more? Um, so that in and of itself was, you know, mind blowing for the time, even though we don't really think of it that way. Um, it seems so obvious. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Chaitra Nagaraja about history and statistics. Chaitra, I know you have a column that is uh, in the September uh, issue of Chance for the History uh, Chronicles about um, measuring race for census. Or se- I don't know, what is the plural of census? Censuses. Censuses. I was like, it's not sensei, right? Sensei. <laughs> I was like, you, well, you're my sensei. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, you know, I was reading that and I was so, so interested uh, in it and sort of like the history of, of race data collection. I mean, I am, I'm someone who is multiracial uh, by background. And when I was a kid, I remember on all of those like test forms we had to take, there was never something that reflected that. And I would often make my own boxes and get in trouble and get yelled at by it and write multiracial or like I would check all the boxes and get yelled at like I would never fit myself in a box and so it's something I'm always thinking about and I was really excited to see this column and I kind of just wanted to hear sort of how this where this grew out of for you and sort of why you decided to dive into this particular topic well um, I used to work at the census bureaus I've always liked official statistics but this particular topic came because of my work on the um policy advisory committee that I am on at the ASA. And um, through that was circulated some possibilities for commenting on the current um, changes that are going to be made to the race data collection by the Office of Management and Budget. So in the US, that means this um, entity, which is part of the executive branch, is Um, tasked with sort of setting some standards, and those are called statistical policy directives. And there are some rules that, you know, everybody has to follow just for consistency's sake, and and, and race data collection falls under one of those directives. And so the first one was written in 1977, was updated in 1997, and now it's going to be updated again. And so they've spent a lot of time uh, speaking with various stakeholders, the regular public included. They had... um, a sort of a session where people could ask questions at the most recent joint statistical meetings in Canada, um, which I attended. So it was really interesting to see, you know, what kinds of things came out of their focus groups and so forth and, and how to better have this um, racial category sort of um, depict what people are thinking about themselves. And that includes, you know, multiracial. So to be able to check as many boxes as you want, as opposed to checking one. Um, so for in the past, you were only allowed to check one. Further in the past, you had categories for multiracial, but that was mostly to figure out, 
you know, exactly how much black versus white you were for not so savory, you know, reasons. So that's, I feel like that's a different kind of question for multiracial than what we have now, where we want to sort of have people be able to represent themselves as accurately as possible. Um, So that's how I got interested in it. And I moved recently to the UK. So I was like, oh, I wonder, you know, how things are in England. And so I started looking at that and realized it was it was vastly different, despite what I had kind of anticipated. So that that's sort of where I got interested in the topic. So as, as you started looking at kind of the, the US and UK, so, so maybe we'll start with kind of your modern look before we talk about kind of a historical evolution maybe of some of, of these, these categories. What are, what are some of the dramatic differences that you see between the way the US census deals with this versus the UK? So currently, the US allows you to do many, as many boxes as you want, and you can sort of give some additional detail if, if you prefer. In the English census, so this is England and Wales run by the Office of National Statistics. Scotland and Northern Ireland actually have their own agencies that do their censuses. But in England, um, they have a separate category for multiple ethnic uh, groups. And so you could be white and black Caribbean. You can be white and black African, white and Asian, and then something else you you write in. Um, So from what I had read, it seemed like Actually, they had talked to people in the U.S. and Canada about how they do multiracial and decided to kind of go a different way as and not do the, you know, check all that apply. But also some major differences uh, are based on, you know, actually, there's no way to get around this, but historical, because in the U.S. you have certain kind of immigration patterns. You have a lot of people who come from Central and South America, Mexico. Um, Whereas in Britain, you have a lot of people coming from former British colonies, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. So those are really highlighted um, certain African countries, Caribbean countries and so forth. So those have labels attached to them and you wouldn't be in the other fill in what you need category. So those are sort of the main um, differences. Actually, one other difference is if you're from the Middle East, you would consider yourself Arab you would have your own category in the in England, but not in the US, you would be considered white. But that's actually a change that the, the Office of Management and Budget are considering making. Um, in your column, it was really interesting to read sort of, because it feels like a, it reads on like how we, ch- our ideas about what race is changes. Because at one point you talk about how, you know, Chinese, Hawaiian, chi- uh, Japanese, all of these were imagined as races right uh early at, at one point and now certainly i think we would see them as as sort of national identities not racial identities and sort of i wonder as you were doing this work was there something that you found particularly interesting or or that you were surprised by when you were sort of digging into this yeah one you know if you look at the census form for different countries it's really ambiguous what counts as race what counts as ethnicity what counts as nationality I'm living here in England. I'm a person of Indian origin, but I'm American. Um, so on the British form, there's Asian or Asian British, of which I'm neither. Right. I'm yeah. Indian, Indian American. And, you know, granted, there's probably not that many people in that sort of combination of things. So um, it's not surprising necessarily that there is a, a box I can check. But it gets very complicated quickly because some of these things are national origin. Some of these things are not. Uh, what does it mean? to be, you know, if I write just American on my form, like what would that 
what would that mean for um, their calculations? Um, what I was surprised actually that I didn't know before um, looking into this is actually Hindu was on the census form in the US for a brief period in the early 1900s, um, which I was surprised about. I, w I w had not known, and I, from what I could tell, that probably just means, you know, Indian subcontinent in general, um, as opposed to Hindu, like the religion. Uh, but that's something I, I think I would like to look into more just from a personal uh, background. You know, you before before we started the recording, you had mentioned that that you had just gone out and grabbed a, a, a bunch of different census forms from all around the world. And and yeah, at that time, when, when you described that, you said there was there's lots of very different types of information that was being queried by different countries. Can you can you describe some of the 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 different types of information that was maybe a surprise to you that you saw in these? you know it just goes you know i've not been everywhere on the planet so um local indigenous groups that i you know how would you represent them on the census form mm. was quite interesting so um so in the u.s you would have you know native american groups and you know tribal affiliations that wouldn't necessarily appear elsewhere um in england and this is one that actually when i show american students the english and u.s census forms this is the first thing that they see under the section white, it says gypsy or Irish traveler. And the word gypsy is not something that is a good, not considered an okay word to use in common language in the United States. So people are very shocked to see that on a census form. And this is a, you know, a form that people are, people in England are asked as to the categories. This is not necessarily like, you know, forced upon um, the population. But if you move to like Australia, for instance, and you have Aboriginal groups and Torres Strait, you know, so just to see the variety of boxes and, and I, I guess, you know, in an intellectual sense that racial categories are arbitrary, but it becomes so much more apparent wow. when you just compare these forms that these are, you know, these are obviously made up. Um, and we all know that, but looking at the form just makes it so apparent. It does sort of give you insight into how a society is seeing itself at a particular point in time, or, or like maybe the, the tensions that are inherent in that society too, when that census is being conducted. Yeah. Definitely, because it, it's sort of um, interplay between, you know, government categories and, you know, lobby groups to get a certain kind of terminology used or removed um, and so forth. So I, I think since in the US since the 1960s, when people started filling out their own census forms, as opposed to having somebody kind of fill it out for them who shows up at their house, I think there's been, it's more of a uh, collaborative approach to uh, racial categories than it previously was. I, I was also taken by the, 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 the comment that you made that there's that some countries don't collect this information yes france <clears throat> i think there are a few others that i can't remember off the top of my head but it, france in particular because it sort of goes against their constitution about being egalitarian and you know treating everyone the same regardless of where they come from and, and that's the thing there's been a lot written about you know why collect these in the first place so it could be for sinister reasons you know um the census was used 
uh, inappropriately for targeting Japanese people of Japanese origin during World War II uh, to put in camps. So, you know, people are scared of that um, with good, you know, obviously good reason. Um, despite the laws, you know, there are more laws in place to prevent that from happening now. Um, but on the flip side, there are groups that would like to be recognized. Um, and that is definitely, I'm sure you've seen in the, in the U.S., especially among Asians. You know, there's Asian and Pacific Islander, which is an absolutely ginormous group yeah. of people. And originally, Asian wasn't thought of as, in the same way as that monolith, but actually Asian groups themselves in the 1960s thought, you know, let's band together and have, you know, power with unity. But I think that has had mixed results in that, you know, you have groups of people that have moved to the U.S. for very under very different circumstances. For instance, people from the Indian subcontinent came after mostly after 1965. I think that was the year of the Immigration Act. And so tend to be much more educated and you know they came for schooling that's how my own family, you know parents came over and so they have a very different trajectory than other types of groups that can maybe came as refugees for example and so combining them into sort of one group with very different languages cultures different parts of the world may not make as much sense and so now it's sort of very muddled it is interesting thinking about uh, that new change that's happening where people who are from MENA, Middle East or North Africa, will now no longer be sort of collapsed under white and can choose. And so just, you know, again, thinking about like the choices we make. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about how how did that decision get made or was, was that pressure brought by people who are from that background bringing that to the census or is that something that sort of, I don't know, I don't know if anything develops naturally, right? But, but sort of how did that change happen? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, some of it probably was, you know, after September 11th, it kind of was something that, you know, came to the forefront a lot more than, you know, for obviously for not so good reasons. But I do know, at least from the session I attended at the Joint Statistical Meetings, that they did a lot of focus groups on figuring out how to define that category. How does how does someone know that they maybe they belong into that category and had a lot of trouble with that mm -hmm. in terms of what, you know, do you list countries like what is what what exactly does that mean? So I, I think there's some discussion still happening in terms of how best to describe this category in a in a concise enough way because obviously no one wants to read like 20 pages right, of instructions right. to you know to fill out a census form so um that that seemed to be something they were still discussing at that point you know as, as you were describing that there's this this mental picture of kind of grabbing a lot of different opinions and bringing this together and trying to do this. And and so, so you know, there's there's a sense that these are systems that are being implemented by these national statistical offices. So can, can, you, can you comment about kind of what the role is of these organizations and why are they so, you know, purposeful of trying to, to gather this additional input? Yeah. So in the U.S., it's very decentralized. There are considered 12 uh, federal statistical agencies, and there's been discussion about combining them under one, but people are suspicious that they would have too much power because they would have so much information. So, you know, the usual, the mini version of the state versus federal rights type, type debate, you know, plays out in, in many different levels. But in more recent times, there's a lot of sense of, um, and this is true in England too, that you know you need to specifically with due to race, 
data collection that you need it to sort of see if civil rights are being enforced. Like the, that is one of the purposes of collecting this information. Um, so the goal is to try to, you know, how do you apportion funds or how do you, you know, you can think of, and the English census does this, but the U.S. census no longer does. Um, ask a lot of questions about, you know, is English your first language or do you speak something else at home? You know, information needed to try to figure out where to apportion certain kinds of uh, federal funds. Um, in the U.S., that function um, falls a lot to the American Community Survey, which is sort of the hived off version of what's considered what's called the long form of the decennial census. So previously, people used to get some people used to get a much, much longer uh, census form, but they sort of decided that, you know, maybe we need that kind of information a little bit more frequently than once every 10 years. Um, so the American Community Survey is, is held every year, you know, sort of data collected throughout the year. Um, so that's sort of the main um, reason. And there was a good quotation, I think it's James Madison, if I am remembering correctly, who said in that, you know, without, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, without, you know, information, like, how do you govern? You know, if you don't know your population, how can you best serve them? Um, so I, I think those kinds of reasons are, are good ones. Obviously, protections need to be put in place for confidentiality, privacy, and a lot of that is getting much, much trickier with um, sort of independent private databases that have been mm. amassed, you know, like everything we touch, right, goes into some database and they can be connected to government databases in ways that, you know, might identify people. So there's a lot of discussion about, you know, how can we give granular information that's useful to local authorities? So this is not just federal government, but, you know, your local city you live in, your municipality, um, but still manage to keep people's confidentiality maintained. Um, so it's definitely a very tricky question. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Chaitra, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much. It's great to be on the show. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.